Hello and welcome to Hit Me in the Heart, the podcast that's reapplying its mascara after a very heavy day. I'm your bleeding heart millennial, Scott. I'm your hearty flyboy, Travis. And I'm your kind hearted old Paul. And I'm your special guest, Devin. Yay! Yay! Welcome, special guest, Devin. And on today's episode, take it away, Devin. We're going to learn the four rules of queenliness. Princess. I could live with that. I'm a princess. B to the R to the N to the S. I'm a princess. The year is 1996. I was nine years old. Uh, I had just recently, my family had moved from Richmond Hill, a suburb of Toronto, effectively, uh, to a much further north, much smaller town named Keswick in Ontario. We had at that point moved oh, several times. And so as a kid, I just felt really alone all the time. Like I didn't have any kind of stable connection with the world. And on top of that, I was just kind of battling with what it meant to be queer and not have any queer idols that I'd ever seen at this point. Being raised by media, I had only ever seen representation in really coded fashions, like from Xena, seeing like mm, pseudo lesbian relationships or Dame Edna and Disney villains uh, were the closest thing to who I was. And that always felt really alone. I always felt so isolated as a person. And as, a, as an entity, and I never thought anyone would really understand me because the closest thing to me was the thing people hated the most. But that was up until this one summer night when my mom and her and my stepfather rented a movie to Wong Fu, thanks to everything, Julie Newmar. And by accident, I ended up watching it. I cannot believe that your mother saw this in Blockbuster Video in 1996, picked it up and said, this is what we're going to take home tonight. I don't know what happened. And the same night she rented Tank Girl and I saw both back to back. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it changed my life. Wow. We should talk about this more because, again, that's amazing. Did she know what she was getting herself no, into? No, she had no. no clue. It was chosen by my stepfather, too. Oh, who, my God. Flash forward, looks exactly like Virgil. He wow. looks identical to Virgil in this movie. Did they stay for the movie? They watched the whole thing? He left for the first 10 minutes. He was just like, not my, not for me. And then my mom watched it with me and then eventually left. And I ended up watching it alone. Oh, they wow. left by the halfway point. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to word this eloquently, do you think that do you think there's a small part of you, if you've ever wondered, mm -hmm. you said that your mom and stepdad had rented the film. Mm -hmm. Do you think there was any part of that that they saw something in you that might be helped by this film, or that is a completely ridiculous notion? No, I actually I I would believe that my mom absolutely did because I was abundantly gay at a very young age. Yeah, I I've never even thought to ask her. I I know that she was very aware of how um, at least a little swishy I was. Like I was enrolled in theater camp at that point and I was given Barbies as presents for when I got my tonsils out and I used to wear furs and wigs with my great grandmother and like there was not a lot of subtlety in terms of my homosexuality. I was going to say whether uh, whether it was intentional or not, I think mm -hmm. it's quite a beautiful film to see if you are a gay boy. Like I think what so a too. what a great film to especially at that at that time period to make you feel better about yourself or at least give you a little bit of hope or spark of hope if if you hadn't seen it yet. Yeah, it it truly made me feel safe in the world for a long long time and it still gives me that feeling. 
So I think maybe the first thing we should talk about is how it has literally the worst title of any <laughs> film that's ever been produced now or since. Correct? It's absurdly long. Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Yeah, often abbreviated to Tu Wong Fu, yes. and I wasn't sure exactly what I was getting into. I thought it would lean heavily into some sort of Asian influence right. from the title that's three words and what? what? <laughs> yeah, it's actually uh, pulled from a Chinese restaurant in Midtown Manhattan that used to be very popular, and the writer of this movie used to frequent this Chinese restaurant and saw the Julie Newmar poster and wow. Wong Fu was the bartender there. And wow. that's where the title comes from. It's just that they were at a random restaurant in New York. I also I, like that it never was explained. It doesn't matter. Ever. Yeah. It's so irrelevant. And yet like it anchors the whole film as like a thing. And yet it's kind of horrible, but I think the title is in part why I didn't see the movie. Because oh, yeah. when I saw it, it was just like, oh, I don't know what that is. I don't, I'm not interested. I was going to say the same thing. Uh, it was a bit of a turnoff just because it was so wordy. And I feel like I, even though if I had some idea what the movie was about, the just having that lengthy title is threw me off a bit. Yeah. I don't know what, crazy? I don't know what else you could call it I, really I, though. After having <laughs> seen it, like, unless it's one of those titles that is not related in any way to anything. So, uh, what is to Wong Fu? Thanks for everything. Julie Newmar. Like what happens in Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. What are the big moments in Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar? Thanks for putting it so succinctly, Scott. It is a movie that is about three young drag queens pursuing their dreams across America and trying to help each other and the people around them and getting into mishaps and hijinks and weird situations that diffuse for no reason, only to find what they needed in the world is among themselves. I think it's a beautiful fairy tale. Ooh, fairy tale. And it's a tale about fairy... Ah, I see yeah, what you, you see? There. You see? <laughs> there are steps to becoming a queen. I'm sorry. How many? Four! There are four steps to becoming a drag queen. So this movie was written uh, by Douglas Carter Bean, uh, who was the only homosexual working at... Amblin Entertainment at the time, which is the production company owned by Steven Spielberg, directed by Beban Kidron, who was the first woman that they called in to be the director because no men would agree to direct this screenplay once it's it was risky. Passed. 96. Yeah, it's it's like it's super risky. It's a really subversive subversive film at that point. And it was also fascinatingly uh greenlit on spec. This film was made without any like editing done by the studio without any interference in any capacity. It was written as an original screenplay and then pushed right through to production after Steven Spielberg asked Robin Williams' opinion on it. And Robin Williams said it was funny enough, make it. Robin Williams was in the middle of his queer phase with The Birdcage and Mrs. Doubtfire, so yeah. yeah, he was living it, feeling it. It's kind of funny, too. I wonder if the title helped to get made, because it didn't really seem gay. I wonder if your mother would have picked it off the shelf if right. it was three gay queens or something like that. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that like their parents had no idea what this movie was when they first got it because it starred action stars. Like it's starring Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo. And these are three like leading-ish slash lead men that are very muscular and violent in film and like and very very heterosexual wildly <laughs> so that's the only reason it could get made yeah. because you had very straight men what powerhouse performances oh. from the three leads their commitment to what they are doing was phenomenal like i can't see john leguizamo under that makeup 
Like that's just, that's Chi-Chi. It sincerely doesn't feel like it's those actors. When I watch it, I don't feel like I'm watching Patrick Swayze or Wesley Snipes or John Leguizamo. They are so lovingly portraying these characters. There's no, the joke is never that they're gay. The joke is never they that they're They must have had fun. I mean, come on. They get to be powerful women. I know. Yeah, it's pretty good. It seems like a joy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's funny, though, is my other experience with this movie is when I was in high school, it came out. My drama teacher lent it to a good friend of mine who took it home. His mother showed up to school the next day with the film in hand and said, don't you give my son this trash. Oh, wow. And then stomped it with her heel Whoa. until it broke in front of the class. Oh. So naturally, the entire <laughs> drama class ran out after school to go to Blockbuster and rent it and see what was verboten. Absolutely. And I mean, that heel smashing thing became a theme for our school for the next four years. <laughs> Smash things with while wearing heels. It was good. It's shocking that like this film actually spent two weeks at number one in America. It, it's amazing. It was grossed, it a commercial success? Yeah, then? it grossed yeah. forty million. They did. They never released the budget, but like worldwide success, it did well. That's great. Yeah, it like it's shocking. This movie was positively received. There's a little controversy around it uh, because Priscilla Queen of the Desert came out a year beforehand and is effectively the same movie that deals with uh, more realities of queer life. It like has trans representation that's very good. It deals with the AIDS crisis, neither of which are ever touched on in this movie, which is largely something that people complain about. I don't think that they're supposed to be looked at from the same lens. And I think that this movie lives in a very different world than people treat it. Uh, yeah, I feel like it was meant to be a little more campy. Not not that Priscilla Queen of the Desert isn't campy, but I think mm -hmm. it was meant to be more of a... Lighthearted? Yeah, lighthearted. Not, and not to say that you can't deal with those issues in a lighthearted film but mm -hmm. at the same time i don't i'm not sure if it was meant for that and this was about a year before ellen coming out just yeah. to give in the queer timeline like this is before ellen and two years before matthew shepherd it like and coming off the back of like a decade of movies where the queer people were not having a great time no tom hanks just won an oscar for philadelphia where he slowly died of aids on film like it's a tragic time and then this comes out and that's actually like why this meant so much to me as a kid. It was the first time that I ever saw joyous representation of queerdom and it felt like the Disney movie that I never got to see. Well, pumpkins, it looks like it comes down to that age old decision, style mm. or substance. A lot of sort of drag queens, their whole shtick is bitchy, cruel, whatever. Mm -hmm. But these are drag queens that build each other up. They can have disagreements, but they ask for forgiveness afterwards. They, mm. yeah, their fights are good from from like for the right reasons. You've got the you've got the Wesley Snipes character basically saying, "Look, I don't get involved because I could end up dead." That's mm. what happens in New York to me at this time. Mm -hmm. So, little rich white lady might get off with it, not so much me. Yeah, and it's all very, it's very, very character motivated as well. It doesn't take any lazy shorthand. There's some not so nice language in there uh, by it, today's standards, but it is mid-90s. I think it needs to be seen as an artifact of its time because it definitely is not in any way politically forward for where we're at. Right. Uh, and obviously, therefore, falls prey to a lot of ignorances that... Uh, we've learned from hopefully and like we can address more commonly now than then for sure but it's not worth discarding on those accounts no, no definitely I, not i think it really stands as something beautiful and important in the moment that it came out because it it was hopeful 
And it was hopeful in a time when I think people needed hope. And I did. Like, I know I did. It was right. a time that I, I felt okay to be gay. And like, I felt okay to not just be gay, but to be happily gay and excitedly gay. Did this movie help you come out a little bit? Yeah. I think it helped me feel safe in spaces. And that's a, a big thing, I think, for queer people when you're yeah, surrounded yeah. by people that aren't like you and places that don't accept you implicitly. I think this movie really shows you the importance of carving out space for yourself and allowing people in safely so that they can celebrate you with you. I think there are a lot of moments where it really you see that happen where like when they got into the small town and when they were put up in a small room that was inherently alien to who they are that seemed almost dangerous. They were brought into a wood house with like no decorations, bad lighting and what seems like an indifferent man. An abusive man, we later find out. Yeah, yeah. a horrible, evil man. They take the space and they queer it, and suddenly the town starts to change around them. People marvel at what they can do. They marvel and celebrate them and bring them into their homes. And even though that scene is a teeny bit cheesy, yes. it literally, there are people at the door looking to see what's going on because they're creating a spectacle that mm -hmm. the town gets excited about because most of the town is pretty sad and a little rapey. <laughs> More than a little rapey. <laughs> a little rapey. It, apparently every young man in that town is a rapist other um, than one. Two. 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 Uh, notable people. The romantic hero for Chichi Rodriguez and what I think is one of the most uh, queer coded characters in the movie which is the shop owner who has a audible stutter that, 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 that just stuff my grandma bought when, when she opened it it never so and she never said back and he gets brought into the queerness that like he was afraid to potentially afraid to express and loses the stutter by the end of it like right. he's no longer outed by his voice he's claiming an identity i think it's like a really interesting coming out of the closet narrative that is just subtle. It's so subtle in this you movie. You can see it if, if you are looking closely, but yeah, yeah. your mother wouldn't have picked it up Absolutely when not. she had seen it. Yeah, yeah, it excited me so much as a kid. And I've, I've watched this, I think, every year of my life since then. <laughs> and I, like it's guided me in so many ways as a person. I love the magical reality of queerness in this. They They are magical. They change people. They help people they are flawed and confront these really extreme and horrible circumstances sexual assault is seen like physical battery there is the chance that they could die multiple times and you like fear for them it could have gone a different way too like if the community didn't stand up sure you know the the drag queen was in the right but i i don't actually know where the town was was it the south somewhere like if it's the south the the, the this cop had this sort of authority to set up a barricade on his own what's to say he couldn't have planted evidence ensured that you know they went to jail for one reason or another just basically for being men in dresses absolutely and i think that's one of the more interesting things about the movie is that they don't see cops as safety and like that's so true of a great right, experience right considering the time of the movie it's it's interesting that you don't really see gay in a negative light because for mm -hmm. a, for a film for the mid 90s that could have been a very really easy trope to go after and to, to to fall back on to maybe even make it fun of it in a campy way but it never really does get made fun of other than the antagonist i guess the the cop who was we found out from their allusions to being secretly homosexual himself. Mm -hmm. You know, they could have they could have easily fallen back on that, and they didn't. They 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 didn't touch that with any sort of humor or seriousness at all, which is which I thought was helpful. 
I think so too. Yeah, it has a lot of kind of um, relevance to today, especially since we're now having a much more open dialogue about the role of police and the queer experience, which was going on much more severely back in the time, but you couldn't have that discussion or that discussion just wasn't being had in an open forum. And this was kind of a creative way that I feel like every queer person in the audience would be able to look at those interactions with the police and understand just how terrifying that whole interaction and that authority and the the implicit threat of violence with weapons and ownership over their bodies and just all of these ideas kind of compound in very nasty ways when you look at it from a queer perspective. And if you look at it from a perspective that doesn't really know anything about that, it's like, oh, well, the cops after them because she had a shoving match when he tried to sexually assault her thinking <laughs> right, she yeah. was a woman. There's some meat there to chew on. It, it is really heady. And I think what's really interesting about that narrative and how it connects to this whole what I see as fairy tale, like what I see as this very, very queer fairy tale, is that the moral is about community and the power of community and the power to confront what is authoritarianism or like misplaced tyrannicy, which you like, that's what the cop is in this. He's a, a bigot that is chasing them down with threats to kill them and community saves them a community they didn't even know they were part of. Right. And that's like a really beautiful message. And I think it's a true message for queer life that like we are the many. strength is in the community. The strength is by banding together. That's when people change is because you can't take down a, cr a crowd of 50 people as one person. Mm -hmm. But if you have some semblance of authority and there's only three people and they're not sure because they're out of their time and place, that's when you get these people. You yeah. collect them from the fringes. It's when we're exposed and can be preyed upon in that way. And it was so empowering to me to see that and like know that there's that moment of like, if you can connect with your community, if you can find that place where people love you for who you are, no matter how strong the outside is, they're not going to get at you. Like you can get through that. How do you think the film treats the idea of masculinity? We obviously are having a much more like a cultural discussion about like toxic masculinity mm -hmm. right now. And... It's not that masculinity is the enemy, mm -hmm. like the, I don't want to call them the rapey boys, because that's just... <laughs> no, let's call them so the rapey that's boys. That's what that's they were. That's kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. By the end, they are reformed, not out of masculinity, but out of a mindset that's about ownership and mm -hmm. like that sort of stuff. I don't know. Also like, a bit of public shaming. Mm -hmm. The community literally, well, through... Wesley Snipes characters shames them into behaving better so it's not acceptable now to chase women down in groups anymore it's a real like subtle influence of power mm -hmm. he said remembering that Wesley Snipes grabs that guy by the balls right well I would say that that's actually a really interesting way to show where masculinity can protect you because I think there are a lot of moments in this where they they code switch from feminine to masculine and the masculine protects in these moments, these feminine men use their masculinity to protect each other. I ain't apologizing <laughs> to no ladies. Right. No, no way. Today. No way. <laughs> Just as I expected. Well, do you like my nails? What can I say? She's had a difficult life. Patrick Swayze defends a woman being beaten actively by her husband by fighting him like physically overpowering. It's a very masculine moment for the character, but you never... But she doesn't lose her swagger. Never. And doesn't dust up that Dusty Rose suit of hers. She does it elegantly. Yeah. She ices her knuckles after. <laughs> Wesley Snipes confronts those men that were catcalling the women coming out of a, sh a store. And by being more masculine than them, 
he caused them to be less toxic. It was a really interesting way of confronting types of masculinity, I think. I, I have this thing where I need closure. I just need closure. I want to know what was in the FedEx box at the end of Castaway. I want to know if Bobby Ray was upset with Chi-Chi for deceiving him or if he knew he was being deceived or if that was even an issue for him if he did truly just love who he saw and who he was with or not and maybe that's a lot to wrap up at the end of the film because there's so many other things to wrap up but i i did wish i saw a little closure with uh with bobby ray and chi chi i think we almost have to believe that it wasn't just uh rizzo i i can't remember her character name Stalker Channing. uh i can't i caroline because if she was the if she knew certainly they all knew if the cop came in saying give me the drag queens give me the drag queens and they were all there to stand up protect to protect them certainly they must have known so in that moment you're right like i don't know if a country bumpkin would be able to pick out the the man in the drag but maybe you know there's not very many glamorous women and, that come to town so and maybe it, in, in the end it doesn't matter right but I, but I don't i just i wish i had seen that represented right in the film there was a little part of me that hoped he that bobby ray knew the whole time and it was when chi chi eventually told him the truth i don't know why i was gunning for this story arc but maybe when Chi-Chi in tells 2006 him the truth, not yeah. in 1996 <laughs> and that bobby ray would just Say, oh, I, I don't, I don't care who you are. I love you. Right. I don't know. I, I'm gonna, What's funny I'm though is pull, pull back from my fairy tale. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, but oh. that did happen in uh, in uh, Priscilla, didn't it? Yeah, I believe so. A really interesting part of this movie that is very subtle but peppered in throughout the entirety of it and through the narrative of almost everything good in the movie is the importance of embracing, reifying, and learning from your ancestors, and you find safety not in going forward which i think is a very disney type of thing like the happily ever after moral for queer people at least at this time and something that i really identify with personally is the idea that we are safer when we see the places we've come from and when we look back at the people who built the bridges for us to cross throughout the entire movie there are moments where they learn from the lessons of those that came before them and they offer those lessons to people who never had access to them, like Bobby Lee learning from Ms. Ann Baxter in The Ten Commandments. They take an icon of queerness and say, look, you can be more powerful with what we have power from as well. The Diana Vreeland book helps the shop clerk right. lose his stutter. Uh, Ms. Norma? No, Ms. Clara uh, gains the ability to speak and connect and live again by exploring old movie stars with Noxima Jackson on a porch. Right. There are these really beautiful moments that show how important it is to bring the people who paved our path with us and learn from them and share them. It's and, like and even, the movie. So. Yeah, and even in a more obvious way with Chi-Chi. They, yeah. they pluck her off the street, this poor little Latin boy that's crying on the stairs, yeah. and they she ends up in Hollywood being the, you know, the pageant winner. And also this movie is very prophetic, what with RuPaul announcing the winner of a drag competition in uh, a tie too between a black woman and a white woman it's almost like all-stars four hmm. oh oh i haven't seen all-stars four well there's a tie gay gasp <laughs> it's funny too i i think that some of the lessons are still very valuable you know as as we get into 2020 and 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 on we're losing things like gay villages and uh those those community sort of outreach centers or even the 519 here in toronto um, those spaces are kind of not as utilized as they might have been in the past because people are feeling connections through or finding connections through the internet, through other sort of means. And as queer culture becomes more accepted, you don't 
need to go to gay bars to feel safe, but that's where a lot of the community is as well. And I don't know, when bad things happen, it's nice to know where the people who have your back are going to be and not have to worry. Mm -hmm. Is it still relevant today or has it been superseded by the explosion of queer culture that's come after it? I think it is relevant today, to be honest. I think that a lot of modern queer things and really just any uh, narrative or media that is created that has underrepresented voices in it is treated as if it has to be perfect. It's treated as if it has to represent the fullness of an experience. I think that a lot of things suffer under that burden. Absolutely. That we don't say these things about Transformers movies, even though they're cookie cutters. We right. don't judge them by saying that isn't the wholeness of the heterosexual experience. <laughs> but like a queer movie comes out and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, but that doesn't accurately represent the entire life of that character. Like, of course it doesn't. It can't. Well, that just happened with that looking series that lasted a couple, like people really mm. liked it. And then a whole bunch of people said, well, that's not what it's like. Or the will and grace. That's not what it's like to be gay. Mm -hmm. I, I know it doesn't, it's not going to be for everyone. It's funny. Um, both Paul and I got to take part in um, the Bear City movies and they Hold weren't up. perfect <laughs> movies. Um, however, oh, uh, that's someone that was for a couple hundred thousand dollars was trying to give a tiny voice to a small community. A couple of my friends saw the movie. It wasn't perfect, but they, they got a piece of queer culture because mm -hmm. people were trying to make an effort. You got to sort of blur the lens a little bit and sort of squint uh, every once in a while. So long as there's a good message and message of community. It's yeah. a pretty good message. I think we need our Disney movies. Like they're yeah. not perfect, but it, it has a fun, loving story at its core. And it's not out to hurt anyone. I want that. I want more of that. And some pretty good outfits. Oh, they're beautiful. Those hats, <laughs> they yeah. really say something. Yeah. I don't think of you as a man. Now, I don't think of you as a woman. I think of you as an angel. I think that's healthy. So, boys, did it hit you in the heart? I, I will say I see it a little bit more as a relic. I wish I would have seen it in 1996 because it probably would have been helpful. But um, even now, yeah, it, it, it got me a little bit. It really did. Yeah, it did hit me in the heart. Weirdly, my biggest takeaway from it, seeing it, you know, for the first time only a few weeks ago, was what a rare talent Patrick Swayze was. Oh, totally. I'd always kind of dismissed him as just another actor dude. And then to see how much his background as a dancer like helped him and carries him through this movie. Ugh. I do wish I had seen this when I was... Uh, a young questioning sort of gay man or straight man. I don't even know what to call myself back in 1996. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, it hit me in my big old queer heart. Well, that was Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. We hope you sincerely enjoyed our podcast on Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. One last time, I am your bleeding hot millennial, Scott. I'm your hearty flyboy, Travis. And I'm your kind-hearted oaf, Paul. And I'm your special guest, Devin. Wait, and before we catch you on the next one, do you want to tell us a little bit about who who you are today, Devin? I am a Toronto comedian. I perform around the city, nowhere regular. It just changes around. I do a lot of writing and acting. That's about it. So if you see my name on a playbill, come see the show, because I might uh, make you laugh, maybe, if I try hard. And we'll catch you on the next one. 
much for listening to Hit Me In The Heart. You can listen to all the episodes on our website, hitmeintheheart.com, where you'll also find links to Tu Wong Fu, Thanks For Everything, Julie Newmar, and other bits and pieces we mentioned in today's episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you want to support us, the very best thing you can do is to leave a review online that will help new people find our show and make sure that we can keep doing this crazy little podcast that can. Our email is hitmeintheheartpodcast at gmail.com. 